Hey everybody, this is Mr. Paveo. Today we're going to start a new book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. This is the fifth book in the Chronicles of Narnia series, and it picks up where Prince Caspian left off. I hope you enjoy it. C.S. Lewis's The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Chapter 1. The Picture in the Bedroom There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. His parents called him Eustace Clarence, and masters called him Scrub. I can't tell you how his friends spoke to him, for he had none. He didn't call his father and mother, father and mother, but Harold and Alberta. They were very up-to-date and advanced people. They were vegetarians, non-smokers, and teetotalers, and wore a special kind of underclothes. In their house, there was very little furniture, and very few clothes on beds, and the windows were always open. Eustace Clarence liked animals, especially beetles, if they were dead and pinned on a card, and he liked books if they were books of information and had pictures of grain elevators or of fat foreign children doing exercises in model schools. Eustace Clarence disliked his cousins, the four Pemsies, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, but he was quite, quite glad when he heard that Edmund and Lucy were coming to stay, for deep down inside him, he liked bossing and bullying, and though he was a puny little person who couldn't have stood up to even Lucy, let alone Edmund, in a fight, he knew that there were dozens of ways to give people a bad time if you are in your own home and they are only visitors. Edmund and Lucy did not at all want to come to stay with Uncle Harold and Aunt Alberta, but it couldn't be helped. Father had got a job lecturing in America for 16 weeks that summer, and Mother was to go with him because she hadn't a real holiday for 10 years. Peter was working very hard for an exam, and he was to spend the holidays being coached by old Professor Kirk, in whose house these four children had had wonderful adventures long ago in the war years. If he had still been in the house, he would have had them all to stay but he had somehow become poor since the old days and was living in a small cottage with only one bedroom to spare. It would have cost too much money to take the other three all to America, and Susan had gone. Grown-ups thought her the pretty one of the family, and she was no good at schoolwork, though otherwise very old for her age. And Mother said she would get far more out of a trip to America than the youngsters. Edmund and Lucy tried not to grudge Susan her luck, but it was dreadful having to spend the summer holidays at their aunt, at their aunt's. But it's far worse for me, said Edmund, because you'll at least have a room of your own, and I shall have to share a bedroom with that old record stinker, Eustace. The story begins on an afternoon when Edmund and Lucy were stealing a few precious minutes alone together, and of course they were talking about Narnia, which was the name of their private and secret country. Most of us, I suppose, have a secret country, but for most of us, it's only an imaginary country. Edmund and Lucy were luckier than other people in that respect. Their secret country was real. They had already visited it twice, not in a game or a dream, but in reality. They had got there, of course, by magic, which is the only way of getting to Narnia, and a promise, or a very nearly a promise, had made them in Narnia itself that they would someday get back. You may imagine that they talked about it a good deal when they got the chance. 
They were in Lucy's room, sitting on the edge of her bed and looking at a picture on the opposite wall. It was the only picture in the house that they liked. Aunt Alberta didn't like it at all. That was why it was put away in a back room upstairs. But she couldn't get rid of it because it had been a wedding present from someone she did not want to offend. It was a picture of a ship, a ship sailing straight towards you. Her, pow, her prow was gilded and shaped like the head of a dragon with a wide open mouth. She had only one mast and one large square sail, which was a rich purple. The sides of the ship, what you could see of them, were where the gilded wings of the dragon ended, were green. She had just run up to the top of one glorious blue wave, and the nearest slope of, what, of that wave came down towards you with streaks of bubbles on it. She was obviously running fast before a big wind, listing over a little on the, her port side. By the way, if you're going to read this story at all, and if you don't know already, you had better get into looking, get it into your head that the left of a ship, when you are looking ahead, is port, and the right is starboard. All sunlight fell on her from that side, and the water on that side was full of greens and purples. On the other side, it was darker blue from the shadow of the ship. The question is, said Edmund, whether it doesn't make things worse looking at a Narnian ship when you can get there. Even looking is better than nothing, said Lucy, and she is such a very Narnian ship. Still playing your old game, said Eustace Clarence, who had been listening outside the door and now came grinning into the room. Last year, when he had been staying with the Pembetsies, he had managed to hear them all talking of Narnia, and he loved teasing them about it. He thought, of course, that they were making it all up, and as he was far too stupid to make anything up himself, he did not approve of that. You're not wanted here, said Edmund curtly. I'm trying to think of a limerick, said Eustace, something like this. Some kids who played games about Narnia got gradually balmier and balmier. Well, Narnia and Balmier don't rhyme to begin with, said Lucy. It's an assonance, said Lucy, Eustace. Don't ask him what any asthma thingy is, said Edmund. He's only longing to be asked. Say nothing and perhaps he'll go away. Most boys on meeting a reception like this would either have cleared out or flared up. Eustace did nothing. He just hung about grinning and presently began talking again. Do you like that picture? He asked. For heaven's sakes, don't let him get started about art and all that, said Edmund hurriedly. But Lucy, who was very truthful, had already said, Yes, I do. I like it very much. It's a rotten picture, said Eustace. You won't see it if you step outside, said You won't see it if you step outside, said Edmund. Why do you like it? said Eustace to Lucy. Well, for one thing, said Lucy, I like it because the ship looks as if it was really moving, and the water looks as if it was really wet, and the waves look as if they're really going up and down. Of course, Eustace knew lots of answers to this, but he didn't say anything. The reason was, at that very moment, he looked at the waves and saw that they did look very much indeed as if they were going up and down. He had only once been in a ship, and then only as far as the Island of Wight. And had, and had been horribly seasick. The look of the waves in the picture made him feel sick again. He turned rather green and tried another look. And then all three children 
were staring with open mouths. What they were seeing may be hard to believe when you read it in print, but it was almost hard to believe when you saw it happening. The things in the picture were moving. It didn't look at all like a cinema either. The colors were too real and clean and out of doors for that. Down went the prow of the ship into the wave and up went a great shock of spray. And then up went up the wave behind her and her stern and the deck became visible for the first time and then disappeared as the next wave came to meet her and her bows went up again. At the same moment, an exercise book, which had been lying beside Edmund on the bed, flapped, rose, and sailed through the air to the, to the wall behind them. And Lucy felt all her hair whipping around her face as it does on a windy day. And this was a windy day, but the wind was blowing out of the picture towards them. And suddenly, the wind came, with the wind came the noise, the swishing of waves and the slap of water against the sides of the ship and the creaking and the overall high steady roar of, of air and water. But it was the smell, the wild briny smell, which really convinced Lucy that she was not dreaming. Stop it, came Eustace's voice, squeaky with fright and bad temper. It's some silly trick you two are playing. Stop it. I'll tell Alberta. Oh. The other two were much more accustomed to adventures, but just exactly as Eustace Clarence said, oh, they both said, ow, too. The reason was that a cold salt splash had broken right out of the frame, and they were breathless from the smack of it besides being wet through. I'll smash that rotten thing, cried Eustace, and then several things happened at the same time. Eustace rushed towards the picture. Edmund, who knew nothing about magic, sprang after him, warning him to look out and not be fooled. Lucy grabbed at him from the other side and was dragged forward. And by the time either they had grown much smaller or the picture had grown bigger, Eustace jumped to try to pull it off the wall and found himself standing on the frame in front of him. Was not the frame in front of him was not glass, but real sea and wind and waves rushing up to the frame as they might to a rock. He lost his head and clutched at the other two who had jumped up beside him. There was a second of struggle and shouting, and just as they thought, they had got their balance, a great blue roller surged up round them, swept them off their feet, and drew them down into the sea. Eustace's disappearing cry ended as the water got into his mouth. Lucy thanked her stars that she had worked hard at her swimming the last summer term. It is true that she would have gotten much better if she had used a slower stroke, and also that the water felt a great deal colder than it had looked while it was only a picture. Still, she kept her head and kicked her shoes off, as everyone ought to do who falls into deep water in their clothes. She even kept her mouth shut and her eyes open. They were still quite near the ship. She saw its green side towering high above them and people looking at her from the deck. Then, as one might have expected, Eustace clutched at her in a panic, and down they both went. When they came up again, she saw a white figure diving off the ship's side. Edmund was close beside her now, treading water, and had caught the arms of the howling Eustace. Then someone else, whose face was vaguely familiar, slipped an arm under her from the other side. There was a lot of shouting going on from the ship, heads crowding together above the bulwarks, ropes being thrown. Edmund and the stranger were fastening ropes around her. After that followed what seemed a very long delay, 
during which her face got blue and her teeth began chattering. In reality, the delay was not very long. They were waiting till the moment when she could be got on board the ship without being dashed against its sides. Even with all their best endeavors, she had a bruised knee when she finally stood, dripping and shivering on deck. After her, Edmund was heaved up, and then the miserable Eustace. Last of all came the stranger, a golden-haired boy, some years older than herself. Captain! Caspian! gasped Lucy, as soon as she had breath enough. For Caspian it was. Caspian, the boy king of Narnia whom they had helped set to the, on the throne during their last visit. Immediately, Edmund recognized him too. All three shook hands one, cla and clapped one another on the back with great delight. But who is your friend? said Caspian, almost at once turning to Eustace with a cheerful smile. But Eustace was crying much harder than any boy of his age has a right to cry when nothing worse than a wedding has happened to him and would not yell out, Let me go, let me go, I don't like it. Let you go, said Caspian. Caspian, but where? Eustace rushed to the captain's side, as if he expected to see the pic the picture hanging above the sea, and perhaps get a glimpse of Lucy's bedroom. What he saw was blue flakes, blue waves flecked with foam, and paler blue sky, both spreading without a break to the horizon. Perhaps we can hardly blame him if his heart sank. He was promptly sick. Hey, Rhinelf, said Caspian to one of the sailors, bring spiced wine for their majesties. You'll need something to warm you after that dip. He called Edmund and Lucy their majesties because they and Peter and Susan had all been kings and queens of Narnia long before his time. Narnian time flows differently from ours. If you spend a hundred years in Narnia, you would still come back to our world at the very same hour of your very same day on which you left. And then, if you went back to Narnia after spending a week here, you might find that a thousand Narnia years had passed or only, or only a day or no time at all. You never know till you get there. Consequently, when the Pemsey children had returned to Narnia last time for their second visit. It was, for the Narnians, as if King Arthur came back to Britain, as some people say he will. And I say, the sooner the better. Rhinelf returned with the spiced wine steaming in a flagon and four silver cups. It was just what one wanted, and as Lucy and Edmund sipped it, they could feel the warmth going right down to their toes. But Eustace made faces and spluttered and spat it out and was sick again and began to cry again and asked if they hadn't any plump trees vitamized nerve food and could it be made with distilled water and anyway he insisted on being put ashore at the next station this is a very merry shipmate you've brought to us brother whispered caspian to edmund with more with a chuckle <laughs> but before he could say anything more eustace burst out again oh ugh what on earth is that Take it away, that horrid thing. He really had some excuse this time for feeling a little surprised. Something very curious indeed had come out of the captain in his quarters and was slowly approaching them. You might call it, and indeed it was, 
a mouse. But then again, it was a mouse on its hind legs and it stood about two feet high. A thin band of gold passed round its head under one ear and over the other, and in this was struck, stuck a long crimson feather. As the mouse's fur was very dark, almost black, the effect was bold and striking. Its left paw rested on the hilt of a sword very nearly as long as its tail. Its balance as it paced gravely along the swaying deck was perfect, and its manner courtly. Lucy and Edmund recognized it at once. Reaping sheep, the most valiant of all talking beasts of Narnia, and the chief mouse. It had won undying glory in the second battle of Baruna. Lucy longed as she had always done to take Reaching Sheep up in her arms and cuddle him. But this, as she knew, as she knew well, was a pleasure she could never have. It would have offended him deeply. Instead, she went down on one knee to talk to him. Reepicheep put forward his left leg, drew back his right, bowed, kissed her hand, straightened himself, twirled his whiskers, and said in his shrill, piping voice, piping voice, My humble duty to your majesty and to King Edmund too, here he bowed again, nothing except your majesty's presence was lacking to this glorious venture. Ugh, take it away, wailed Eustace. I hate mice, and I never could bear performing animals. They are silly and vulgar and sentimental. Am I to understand, Reepicheep to Lucy, after a long stare at Eustace, that the singularity discourteous person is under your majesty's protection? Because if not, at this moment, Lucy and Edmund both sneezed. What a fool, what a fool I am to keep you all standing here in your wet things, said Caspian. Come on below and get changed. I'll, I'll give you my cabin, of course, Lucy, but I'm afraid we have no women's clothes on board. You'll have to make do with some of mine. Lead the way, Ribicheep, like a good fellow. To the convenience of a lady, said Ribicheep. Even a question of honor must give way, at least for the moment. And here he looked very hard at Eustace. But Caspian hustled them on, and in a few minutes Lucy found herself passing through the door into the stern cabin. She fell in love with it at once. The three square windows that looked out on the blue swirling water astern. The low cushioned benches round three sides and of the table, the swinging silver lamp overhead, dwarf's work, she knew it at once by its exquisite delicacy, and the flat gold image of Aslan the lion on the forward wall of the door. All this she took in in a flash, for Caspian immediately opened a door on the starboard side and said, This'll be your room, Lucy. I'll just get some dry things for myself. He was rummaging in one of the lockers while he spoke, and then leave you to change... If, you, if you'll fling your wet things outside the door, I'll get them and take them to the galley to be, to be dried. Lucy found herself as much at home as if she had been in Caspian's cabin for weeks, and the motion of the ship did not worry her, for in the old days, when she was queen of Narnia, she had done a great, great deal of voyaging. The cabin was very tiny, but bright and painted with painted panels all birds and beasts and crimson dragons and vines, and spotlessly clean. Caspian's clothes were too big for her, but she could manage. His shoes, sandals, and sea boots were hopelessly big, but she did not mind going barefoot on board ship. When she had finished dressing, she looked out her window at the water rushing past and took a long, deep breath. She felt quite sure they were in for a lovely time. 
That concludes Chapter 1, The Picture in the Bedroom, from C.S. Lewis's The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Stay tuned and look out for more chapters. Hope you enjoyed it. Goodbye.